Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, as we uh, come and sit under your word this morning, Lord, may you be speaking to us. Help us to understand uh, this part of your word clearly. Lord, may you use uh, this word uh, to remind us of who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that you would use this word to equip and challenge and encourage us to live for you, to live for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, what is the meaning of life? Is there meaning or is life meaningless? This was a question that kept me up at night uh, in my teenage years, uh, because when you look at life, you're born, you go to school, you pick a profession, you work, you might get married and have kids, you save and spend money, then you retire, you might holiday, and then one day you die. And all the stuff you've accumulated, all the accolades you've learnt, the things that you've accomplished, it feels like it means nothing. From dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Shakespeare writes in one of his plays, history has no meaning and is a trash bag of coincidences blown open by the wind. And this view of life moves Roman poet Horace to pen the expression carpe diem, seize the day, enjoy the moment while it lasts, put no trust in tomorrow. And that has its own slogan today for the millennials, you only live once, or as Angela says all the time, YOLO. But is this the only way forward? Is this the only way to respond to the reality and the meaning of life? Well, as we embark on this series looking at Ecclesiastes, this book is really a search for the meaning of life, for meaning in life. Ecclesiastes is a well-known book with lots of famous phrases. I grew up with my parents uh, quoting lyrics of the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Some of the oldies might know that. Uh, with takes the words from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. I think some of you might know those uh, that tune, uh, but I can't ever remember going through Ecclesiastes as a whole series in church before, and I'd imagine that this would be the same for many of you. So this will be an interesting journey for us as we tackle this part of the Bible this term. A bit about the author before we keep going. Uh, there's a lot of debate about this but I think it's safe to take King Solomon as the author. We learn in verse 1 that he's the king in Jerusalem and the son of David. It's Solomon most likely in his later years. He's reflecting on his life, his wealth, his power, his influence, and putting together his conclusions on life and his search for meaning. The context, Solomon... Uh, he's also called the teacher or the preacher or probably more accurately the convener or the gatherer. Uh, Solomon, he was known to gather people, uh, both local and international guests. 
Uh, and he did this for wisdom conferences. And it's very likely that this writing was originally a talk given at one of these big wisdom conferences. A few things to know about the writing as a whole. Uh, first, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom writing. It means that there's a lot of poetry, proverbs, images, repetition, and things like that going on in this writing. Second, Ecclesiastes also has very little reference to God or direct teaching about God in it. Uh, this has led to some poor applications of Ecclesiastes, but hopefully as we explore this writing, this term, uh, we'll see how Ecclesiastes fits well into the Word of God, because I believe this writing actually urges the reader and the hearer to look upward and to look to God to find meaning in life. Third and finally, because of this, Ecclesiastes to me reads like an evangelistic talk or an apologetics talk. He's urging people to consider life. Remember Solomon, he had it all. He was the richest, the wisest. He had the most powerful nation. He was rich and innovative like Elon Musk. He partied like Hugh Hefner. He was powerful like Putin or Biden. Yet he found it all meaningless. None of it satisfied him. And he ends with this, if we just have a glimpse in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. You see, meaning, purpose, it's found in living for and obeying God. And we're going to see this as we journey through Ecclesiastes this term. Well, let's begin and have a look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities says the preacher, vanity of vanities. If you didn't get the point, all is vanity. You can imagine the preacher here, he sighs, he's got his hands in the air, he shakes his head, it's vanity, meaning a wisp of vapor or a puff of wind, nothing that you can get your hands on, something passing and pointless. It's like when you walk outside early on a cold morning and you breathe, you see that cloud of vapour, it's there and it's gone. And he repeats it for effect and he repeats it again and he makes his conclusion clear. All is vanity. All the things of the world, it's like that morning breath, there and gone. Vanity. Pointless. This is the preacher's argument for the whole book. In chapter 1, we're introduced to this conclusion. We see a summary of his findings in verse 3 to 11, and we see the start of his search, his investigation in verse 12 to 18. The word vanity is used 38 times in this book, and if we fast forward to chapter 12, verse 8, at the end of the preacher's investigation, the writing closes with the same comment, vanity of vanities, 
says the preacher, all is vanity. All is vanity. Everything the world has to offer is vanity. It's there and gone. It's meaningless. Essentially, the preacher is saying, worldliness, wealth, materials, living it up, health and security, influence and stature, in the end, it amounts to nothing. He's taking aim at today's movements of secularism, atheism, materialism, and his conclusion is, you're not going to find meaning and purpose there. It's vanity. It doesn't fulfill or satisfy. It's there and gone. As we keep going, I wonder if you've had that feeling. You work on Monday to Friday. You do your domestics and have some event on on Saturday. You rest on Sunday. And then, lo and behold, that weekly cycle starts again. And you just feel like you're caught on repeat and repeat and in that cycle. Well, in a bigger way, the preacher here, he explains his conclusion of vanity by looking at life as a whole and showing that it's all an endless cycle. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Everything is vanity because in this world under the sun, which is a phrase that's used 30 times in this book, pointing to the world that we can see and experience, the material world without considering God that's under the sun, basically a secular or atheistic view of life. Because in this world, what does man gain from all his work? What's the profit? What's the return? It's a business world, a word. You work, you labor. And when it's all said and done, what do you have to show for it? That's what he asks. And the implied answer is nothing, vanity. It's here and gone. Then the preacher goes on to show this vicious cycle of life and that there's nothing new under the sun. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You work hard to make the world you live in a better place, but in reality, you're here and gone. Generations come and go. The cycle of time continues. Only the earth itself remains the same. Verse 5 to 7 shows this endless cycle of the world. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Even nature, creation, shows this endless repeat. The sun rises and sets, rises and sets. The wind blows around and around and around and around. The rivers endlessly flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. So it keeps going. It's an endless flow. Endless repeat and no results, no fulfillment. Verse 8 summarizes it. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor 
the ear filled with hearing, the sun, the wind, the water. They're examples showing that it brings nothing, all this work but weariness, useless work of endless repeats and cycles with no results. And now the preacher, he uses our human senses to, pre to plead his case. It's a tricky verse, but we see here the mouth. A person can talk endlessly about this endless cycle of life. Your eyes will never see enough that they will suddenly stop working in satisfaction. Your ears will never hear enough that they will go, I'm full in satisfaction. Our senses, our bodies are just like nature. They're caught in ceaseless activity, endless repeating work. Verse 9 to 11 illustrates this using history. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Here the preacher looks to history, that history is just on repeat, nothing new happens. Not saying that there's no innovation or invention, but it's saying that the same things get repeated again and again, whether they be events, wars, diseases, outbreaks, art, music, architecture styles, cultural moments, teachings and heresies. They might look different, but the preacher's saying, in principle, it's the same thing again and again. The French have a saying that reflects this. The more things change, the more they turn out to be the same. All this pointing to the truth that the preacher is highlighting. There's nothing new under the sun, and everything really is vanity, caught in a meaningless and endless repeat. And that history too is an endless vicious cycle. The past is forgotten. Even the future is one day going to be forgotten in verse 11. You see, this is what life under the sun is like. This is what worldliness, secularism, atheism results in. It's vanity, meaningless, endless repeats with no results no satisfaction and no purpose. No wonder our society grabs onto slogans of carpe diem, seize the day, or that you only live once attitude, because that's where life under the sun leads to. Well, we've seen the preacher's conclusion, his main thesis in verse 1 and 2. We've also seen his summary reasons behind it, in verse 3 to 11. And now we'll see the preachers working out, his search, his exploring, his experiments that leads to his conclusion that everything is vanity. A relentless search that will start here and will go on topic after topic after topic, covering literally everything under the sun for the next 12 chapters. Well, as we start, let's have a look at verse 12. 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You see, the writer reminds us he's not just any old guy, he's King Solomon. He's been there, done that, he's lived the good life, he's had everything at his disposal to find meaning and satisfaction. He's qualified to speak on this topic. And his first topic here is wisdom. Solomon's known as a man of wisdom. Here it says he sought out wisdom. He searched high and wide for it, surely gaining all the knowledge in the world. Being smart, wise, intelligent, having understanding would be a great place to find meaning, purpose, profit, and gain in life. But even here, you can already see it's a dead end. Wisdom is an unhappy thing to be busy with. And as we keep going in the final five verses, Solomon, he gives his verdict on finding meaning in wisdom. Verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He sought out all wisdom, and his verdict is that it's all vanity, here and gone, grabbing onto that vapor that disappears, no result, no meaning, and no satisfaction. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Wisdom can't explain or fix the vanity of the world. And finally, verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom there is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, for Solomon, he gained all the wisdom in the world, but he found that same endless cycle of repeats. Wisdom brings knowledge, and knowledge didn't satisfy, but instead brought sorrow, another cycle, another dead end, no profit, no gain in wisdom under the sun. Which brings the preacher to the conclusion we saw in verse 2. It's all vanity. Meaning isn't found in wisdom. It's just like chasing after the wind. Well, hopefully, as we start the series, you're not too depressed about Ecclesiastes and life seeing how cynical but realistic or blunt Solomon is as he kicks off what seems to be like what we'd call a TED Talk today. As Solomon speaking to the wise and influential people preoccupied with social and economic issues in a wildly successful time 
for Israel as a nation, Solomon, he presents a horizontal view of life. This world only, only the stuff that we can see and touch on this earth, which he labels life under the sun. And he challenges the hearers and readers in verse 3. What do you have to show for your busyness? What have you gained or profited from your work under the sun? And the answer is nothing. You see, Solomon, he's warning Israel that apart from God, that apart from God, they will not gain anything from all their work, that their toil, their work, their labor without God is vanity. And the New Testament actually speaks of this idea of vanity. And the concept in Ecclesiastes that life under the sun is vanity. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility. And this word futility means emptiness or vanity. The Hebrew word for vanity, havel, is translated to Greek here. And that's the word that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. You see, this world of vanity, of meaninglessness, when nothing truly satisfied, nothing truly satisfies, it's actually a result of sin entering the world. But God, he doesn't leave it that way. It's not the end of the story because God used the fall to point us to something even better as the passage keeps going. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, Paul, he agrees with Solomon's life under the sun view, that this world is characterized by vanity. It's marred by sin and death. It's here and gone because of the fall of humanity. But Paul, he moves to show us the above the sun view too. Paul, he shows us what God is doing. That is to point us to hope, hope of a reversal of the fall, hope of a new creation, hope of glory for God's children as we read in verse 21. A hope that we know is ultimately realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because while sin leads to vanity and meaninglessness, Jesus came and died to take away sin. He came and died to reverse the effects of sin. Jesus came and he frees us from the sting of death. And by doing this, Jesus helps us to look beyond what this world offers, to look above the sun, to give real meaning and purpose in life, which is living for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of Ecclesiastes 1 and how the New Testament responds to this, I have two comments 
in applying this chapter for us today. First, finding meaning in wisdom is vanity. I think everyone here would agree that being wise, growing in wisdom, understanding and knowledge is a very good thing. When I was growing up, my parents always gave me words of wisdom, whether they be sayings, proverbs, things to equip me about life. But the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 1 that wisdom ultimately is a dead end, that seeing wisdom as the most important, as the thing that will unlock true satisfaction in life, that devoting your life to being wise, knowledgeable and understanding, it's not going to satisfy It's not going to give your life meaning and purpose. It's not going to profit you or give you gain when all is said and done. In fact, the preacher says, it's vanity, here and gone. It's an empty and endless pursuit. Whether it's secular wisdom, that's understanding and knowledge of the world, of people and psychology, or things about a certain topic or issue, or even Christian wisdom, understanding the Bible well, knowing a lot of doctrine, having insight into complex theological topics, or understanding deeply in church and ministry. All of these things are great things to grow in, but don't find your fulfillment and satisfaction in them. Don't find meaning and purpose in them because the preacher says here it's a dead end. It's an empty and endless pursuit. Finding meaning in wisdom is vanity. Second application, find meaning in following Jesus. You see, if hope for a fallen world marked by vanity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, then our quest my quest, your quest for meaning and purpose in life ought to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants of our lives. And just as Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3 says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Jesus actually asks a very similar question in Mark 8 verse 36. He says, for what does it profit for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And just like in Ecclesiastes, the answer here is nothing. There's no profit. There's no gain. There's no meaning or satisfaction in gaining the whole world and losing your soul. But Jesus here in Mark 8, he gives an alternative way, an alternative solution, a way to find meaning in life. And if, if he indeed is the hope for a vanity world that's fallen and marred by sin, we ought to listen to Jesus, who is the hope of the world. And Jesus says in Mark 8 verse 33, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How do you find meaning in life? Where is their profit? Where does man gain? How do we live with this above the sun view, an eternal view, a Godward view of life? Well, it's by taking up our cross and following Jesus. Taking up your cross and following Jesus. That means dying to self, putting to death your own selfish ambitions and living wholly, completely, fully, and totally for Jesus. It's by making his plans your plans, his desires your desires, loving the way he loves, serving the way he serves, by living not your own life and just adding a little bit of Jesus, but by living completely, totally, and radically for your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, it's only when you live for Jesus that you'll find true meaning in life, both now, here, today, and when Jesus comes again in eternal glory. Maybe this morning you're already living for Jesus. That's most of you here. Well, be encouraged. You'll find, you're finding meaning in the right place. But also be challenged this morning because none of us follow Jesus perfectly. Hear the call afresh today to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And also this morning, be on guard because the world wants to capture your heart with its bright lights, whether it be wisdom or the other things that Solomon the preacher will go on about later in this book. Remember that everything under the sun is meaningless, vanity, and the only path that truly satisfies is by fixing your eyes on the hope given by God, by taking up your cross and following your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning as we finish off, are you living for Jesus? Are you living totally, completely, radically for Jesus? Not just a bit of Jesus, but fully your life for Jesus. Because if you're living for the world, trying to find meaning and satisfaction in the world, in anything that's under the sun, it's not going to satisfy. It's vanity, here and gone. And the only thing that lasts that matters, that gives true purpose and meaning, is completely living for Jesus and Jesus alone. Taking up our cross, that means dying to self and following Jesus. Are you living for Jesus today? Let's pray that God would help us to live completely for Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father God, as we reflect on this part of your word this morning, 
and in the coming weeks ahead. Remind us that all the world has to offer can never truly satisfy or give true purpose or meaning in this world. That meaning, purpose and satisfaction is only found in you and that is only made possible in Jesus who gives hope to a fallen and sinful and vanity world. That meaning and satisfaction and purpose are only found in living for Jesus. Lord God, we often need that challenge and rebuke and encouragement to keep going day by day to live for Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him. Lord God, please work in each of our hearts and minds this morning to this end. Lord, move our gaze away from the seductive lights of the world and focus them on the Son of God who died that we may live. We pray these things in his name. Amen.